Hey, good evening. A special thank you to Mr. and Mrs. Todd and Carrie Greenwald, together with the Rosenbaum and Cohen families for sponsoring the shear tonight. Uh, it is sponsored in honor of the fourth yard site of Mrs. Greenwald's mother, Leah Bas Beryl. The yard site is the 15th of Cheshvan. Her neshama should have an aliyah and Ritz Hashem. Just to share a brief insight, something that Carrie posted earlier, that we could all appreciate that Leah Bas Beryl had a very interesting background. She was a Balas Chuva before the Bal Chuva movement was a thing. Um, if anyone was able to make a bracha tonight or to do a chesed in her, uh, in her schus, you're encouraged to do so. Uh, she had a very lively, energetic simcha sachayim to the point that she requested on her uh, kever, the line can't wait to come back. So her neshama should have an aliyah through our learning and through the continued nachas from the Greenwald, the Rosenbaum, and the Cohen mishpachos. Okay, we're going to take the first minute and a half and do a recap of last week just to get our bearings, and then we're going to go from there. We defined the user-friendly definition of hashkafa. Hashkafa, like mishkafayim, like glasses, is the, uh, the worldview, the lenses through which we see and perceive reality. Hashkafa is seeing the entire picture. If you see a little piece of truth, what you're really seeing is sheker. I'll give you an example. Um, there, there are certain ways of communicating Torah ideas that could be described as very fire and brimstone. And sometimes the, the argument for why there might be a place for a particular method of, of teaching or inspiring is because you have to say it as it is. You have to say it as it is. However, often when you're saying it as it is, you're not really saying the truth. Because if I'm focusing on one aspect of, of Judaism, one aspect of how we view the world and the makeup of the universe. So for example, I want to instill the fear of God within everybody. And therefore, I constantly speak about punishments and consequences. I'm just speaking the truth, right? The answer is, if we don't have the whole context, if we don't have the scope of reality and Yiddishkeit and a proper healthy perspective of Hashem and, and the purpose of mitzvos, then it's true what you're telling me may have a place within Judaism, but if I don't understand the entire picture of which it fits in, then that aspect of truth is actually sheker. Does that make any sense? So hashkafa is not getting lost in the details. We will analyze and appreciate and cherish the details, but to see the broad picture of, uh, of Judaism, the broad picture of our mission here in this world. We spoke about the influence that our perception in life has on the way we feel. 
Right? The way I see something or the way that I'm interpreting something will have a direct impact on how I'm feeling about the situation or how I'm feeling in general. And that will influence the way I behave. So if I think I'm seeing you doing something that's expressing a generosity of spirit, real selfless chesed, then that'll make me feel inspired. And if I'm feeling inspired because of my perception of what you're doing, that might influence me to act or follow suit, to emulate you. So the way we see everything in life has a direct impact on how we feel, who we are, and what we do. The, uh, one of the classic lines of uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Levi of Berdichev, a young man was sharing with him his uh, hesitation, his sveikos that he was having with, with Yiddishkeit. After a while, uh, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak interrupted him and said, I have to tell you a secret. If I had to believe in the same God you don't believe in, I wouldn't believe in him either. And if I had to believe in the same God you don't believe in, I wouldn't believe in him either. Meaning, of course you feel negativity. Of course you have no motivation to do anything that you associate with Yiddishkeit. Because the picture of a Kaddish Baruch Hu and the picture of Judaism that's been painted for you is not the entirety of the picture. It's not the whole truth. You're lacking in your hashkafa, and therefore it's very natural, it's very understandable why you feel the way you do. So the hashkafa project is trying to clarify and expand the picture of Judaism, but even more than that, our picture, our relationship with the Boreolam. We did note that there are two challenges in this process. The first is we want to take the right approach, not outside in, but inside out, from the classic authentic sources trying to listen to the music that's coming out from Tanakh and Gomorrah and Midrashim. And the, uh, the second challenge is trying to overcome or to have enough courage to push through, using the words of Rosham Shemafal Hirsch, the fear of awakening the revered mummy, which meant that we might have this, this uh, feeling of, of yira, of a healthy reverence towards trying to be medactic, to be meticulous in our mitzvos, but there's this hesitation, there's a blockage when it comes to being open and, and being excited or curious about probing deeper and finding out more and maybe even changing my paradigm in something I'm doing every day or changing my paradigm in life itself. So we have to overcome that fear. It's okay to wake up the revered mummy. We want to bring it back to life. Those are our two challenges. And uh, last but not least, Shamsh Nefel Hirsch told us that the only way to redemption, so to speak, is to forget the inherited prejudices and opinions or misconceptions we may have and to be able to embrace and, and learn in a new way with a new, a new set of lenses. And this is how we defined the notion of Das Torah. Das Torah is not just because it's coming from great people who know a lot and who have siyata deshmaya, who might have uh, more of those connections than we do, but Das Torah is literally the wisdom that comes from the Torah itself when we explore it and when we analyze it 
appropriately. Lastly, we said that hashkaf is not just about intellectual answers or explanations or rationales for why we do what we're doing, but it's also the ability to, to become more attuned and more connected to the internal emotional world within us. And that was the beautiful mushal, the powerful example given by the Eish Kodesh, when the child's running to give his father a hug, he can't explain why he has this feeling. He can't explain all of the inner workings of the, the, the mind as to what's uh, propelling him towards his dad. But he doesn't have to. It's true because he's in touch with that, that hargasha. That feeling is so real. So part of hashkaf is not just intellectual peace, but it's also allowing ourselves and opening up to that world of emotion, which ultimately is transformative. I want to share with you two sources uh, in this regard. One is from Rosham Shemafal Hirsch, and the second is actually a Hespid from uh, Rav Salavechik. They're both speaking about the same idea of the importance of cultivating the emotion within our, our Judaism, not allowing life and Yiddishkeit to stay cerebral, but to, to be able to make it more, more part of who I am. Rav Shamshan Hirsch writes, Life as lived should be the flower of knowledge, but in order that life may blossom out of knowledge, knowledge alone is not enough. Meaning to say, right, although this is uh, English, oftentimes it still needs translation. The, the idea here of Shamshan Hirsch is that of course we have to, to base everything we do and how we perceive the world on the knowledge that's gleaned from these ancient sources of wisdom. But if all we have is the intellectual information, we're still going to be stifled. We have to somehow break through and tap into that emotional wellspring within us. And this is the Hesped, the eulogy that Rosalovechik uh, said regarding the Rebetzin of Talmud. This is something I haven't seen until the last year and a half or so. But he has a, a beautiful description here about the relationship and the lessons that he personally learned from his mother. He writes that I used to have long conversations with my mother. In fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. She talked and I happened to overhear. What did she talk about? What did she say? Well, I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of the holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the Sidra every Friday night, going through the Parsha. And I still remember the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in formal compliance with the law, with halacha, but also in a living experience. She taught me the flavor of the mitzvos. I learned from her the most important thing of life is to feel the presence of the Almighty. Without her teachings, quite often, they were transmitted to me in silence, just through observation, I would have grown up as a soulless being, dry and insensitive. 
The laws of Shabbos, for example, were passed on to me by my father. Shabbos, though, as a living entity, as a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. The fathers knew much about Shabbos. The mothers lived Shabbos. So Soloveitchik is sharing that a lot of that experiential Judaism, he was able to learn from his mother. Not so much in her teaching, in her <laughs> preaching, but just by her very essence, the way she was engaged and, and relating to Yiddishkeit herself. So what the goal is for this evening, we're going to try to take this one step further and ask the, the bold question, how do we actually do this? How do we get closer to being that kind of person where it's not just an intellectual process, but it's something we could touch, we could feel, we could smell it, there's a flavor, we could taste it. How do we get closer to becoming those types of, of Obdei Hashem? And the, uh, the basic conversation this evening will be focused on one line that Rosham Shunafel Hirsch shared with us last week, which is, in order to move further or closer to Hashem, we have to forget the inherited prejudices and opinions concerning Judaism. How do we forget everything we've learned and is that really a good or healthy idea? The Rebbeinu Bechaya, the author of the Chovos Levavos, he has in the Shar Cheshben HaNefesh 30 different meditations to think about in order to enhance one's service of God. In his 24th meditation, he focuses on how can we learn things in a way that will move us, that will actually change us, where it's not stuck in the brain, but it's able to penetrate the heart. Let's read together a couple lines of the Rebbeinu Bachaya. Not just reading it intellectually, but let's try to taste it together. There is so much depth in these few lines of the Rebbeinu Bachaya. He says as follows. This is advice coming from one of the greatest personalities of Musser, the author of the, historically speaking, the first Musser Sefer that was ever composed, going back to the 11th century. Says the Rebbeinu Bachaya, we should think, we should question everything that we know and everything that we've assumed until now in our knowledge of Hashem and the Torah. And we should question everything that we've known or assumed within our experience of tefillah, how we daven, how we speak to Hashem. Things that we've had in mind since our youth. Because the way one has the ability to picture something, now that you're older, your mind is more developed, you're more mature, you have more of a real life experience, is so much deeper and so much more multi-layered than it was when you first heard the concept, when you were two, three, seven, ten, fifteen. Don't allow yourself to stay with those same images of, of God and Judaism that you've had since you were younger. 
It's appropriate now that we're older, and the seichel, the intellect, is more developed, it's stronger. To look back into the Torah of Hashem, to look back into the Nevi'im, to look back into the Talmud and the Midrashim, those fountains of ancient wisdom, as if I've never seen those ideas before in my life. To look at something and to learn something as if I've never learned it before in my life. And Baruch Hashem, nowadays they have wonderful books for children on all the Parshios, on the Nevi'im, and they're great for education, for getting the basic storyline, and sometimes they'll incorporate you know, whimsical or exciting midrashim. Ultimately, though, those pictures and that storyline can stay with you for decades. And even when you're in your 30s and 40s and 70s and 80s, I still have that same picture of Avram Avinu and Sari Menu that came from the book that my parents read to me when I was five or six. So says the Rebbe Bechai, we have to try to learn as if we've never learned before. And to ask ourselves, what should be taken literally? And what do I assume is more metaphorical? But whatever you do, don't allow that same mindset that you've had for years to continue with you as you grow. Just like we grow emotionally and we grow intellectually, we have to make sure that we're also growing in our understanding of Hashem and our understanding of the Torah. What's stopping us from doing this? Why is that somewhat of a difficult task? So the Rebbeinu B'chayah concludes, he says, there might be a feeling of, of gaiva. Now, gaiva usually is translated as arrogance. There might be a feeling of arrogance that everything I need to know regarding the basics of life and Judaism, I already know them. Why should I spend time pursuing them? Do you believe in God? Check. Torah Misenai, right? Torah is of, of divine origin? Yes. You believe in Torah Shabbal Peh, the oral transmission? Yes. Okay, you're good to go. What else is there to do? So says the Rebbe that might be coming from a sense of gaiva, but arrogance we know is really based on, on an insecurity. There might be an insecurity within us that's holding us back from allowing ourselves to probe further, to probe deeper. And this gets back into the fear that Rabbi Hirsch spoke about of, we don't want to awaken that revered mummy. Let it stay the way it is. Says the Rebbe you have no right to let things stay the way they are. Now there's one of the well-known philosophers who said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. Right? A real seeker of truth, at least once in your life, you will doubt as far as possible all things. Is this a practical concept to actually implement into life? Try it. <laughs> right? You go home after the shear. Hi, honey, how was the class? 
why are you calling me honey? Uh, I'm your wife. How do I know? Right? <laughs> we had the wedding, we have the pictures. Okay. Who are your parents? Who's your family anyway? Yeah, Bubby and Zadie. How do I know they're your real parents? Right? You should doubt everything. A real truth seeker should doubt everything. So practically speaking, that's probably not a good idea. Number one, for staying sane. Number two, for maintaining shalom bias. There are certain things we know to be true. However, to take this yesod, to take this idea of at least allowing ourselves to doubt the way we viewed many fundamental principles until this point in our lives, it's difficult, but it could be life-changing. And this is where we get into the curse of education. Is education a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> Assuming no, uh, no negative experiences growing up within the system, generally speaking, I think most people would say, I might have issues with this yeshiva or with this school, it's too much homework or there's not, not enough homework, it's too from, it's not from enough. But we would all agree that education is something that every human being needs. You have to know about life and the world around you in order to, to be a productive citizen of this earth. So education is something we definitely believe in. And as Jews, we cherish the notion of learning, of questioning. What's the downside, though, of education? So the author of Kelm, who was known for his very insightful, oftentimes unique angles on different topics within, within Judaism. He speaks about the downfall or the potential dangers of education. Take a look here on page 9, where he asks the following question. He says, I was always concerned, I was always wondering, why is it that the way we live and how we behave are not always aligned with our values and what we know to be true? Pretty basic question. If I know I want to be this kind of person, this kind of mother, this kind of husband, so why is it that I'm not? Why am I not living in the, uh, in the same world, in the same framework as my, my inner core, the things that I believe in? So he says, anything that we've learned, and therefore it becomes hergal, it becomes a habit. Habit often refers to an action that you're doing, a behavior that becomes second nature, but there's also something called hergal when it comes to the mind. There could be habits, patterns of thinking. So anything that we've learned at a younger age, stays with us and becomes how we view ourselves in the world. This is obviously a tool that's needed when educating children. You have to tap into the power of habit. And this is called Girsa the Yankusa. And it's so true when you learn something when you're younger and you review it a few times and you really know it well, it stays with you. Try to learn the same thing many years later it doesn't stick as well. 
So there's a Gersa de Yankosa, whatever I learned when I was younger, it stays with me, and when it's reinforced by my culture, by my family, by my school, that makes it part of how I view reality. However, says the author of Kelb, like everything in life, every rose has its thorns. It's true that education and chinuch is a bracha, it's a responsibility that we have as Jewish parents, we have to educate our children, but it comes along with thorns. What are the thorns of education? And he's not mincing his words. Within the whole system, and he's not pointing to any one particular type of education, but within the whole reality of educating or training children in any aspect of reading, writing, Torah, Hashkafa, there's something that's ra gadol ma'od, something very bad, very detrimental, very harmful, which is, once I begin to view the world in a certain way, through the eyes of a four-year-old, or even through the eyes of a 15-year-old, I can't shake it later on in life. And without real amelus, without real focus on trying to rid myself of some of those impressions, and allow myself to see things differently, I'm left with this impression of a child. That, says the altar of Kelm, is Ra Godel Ma'od. How many articles have we read, or perhaps speeches that we've heard, where the main theme is, we need to live more passionately. We have to infuse Ruach into our Vodas Hashem. Is this a theme that you've heard of before at some point in time over the last few years? Yeah. Okay. Is there anyone who would disagree with that basic message? No, I think we're good. Right? Continuing in a kind of robotic way is something that I feel comfortable with. I think we'd all agree that if somehow you could light the fire and, and explode our whole inner being with, with enthusiasm, that would be a much better way of, of living and practicing Judaism. So to preach about the importance of living and doing mitzvot with passion, that's something we could all relate to and we would accept. The question is though, okay, how do we do that? How do we take things that we do every single day of our lives, incorporating this idea of the altar of Kelm, that I've heard about these things for many, many years, and therefore I have this built-in bias of a five-year-old, and I'm continuing to do these things every single day, how do I somehow just like turn it on? Now I'm going to do it with passion. Now it's going to be geschmack. How do you do that? So he says, similar to the philosopher, the only chance we have is through ridding ourselves of any preconceived notions. To look at something as if I've never seen it before. To look at a mitzvah, to look at a relationship, to look at my child, to look at one of the responsibilities I know I have within my life as if I've never really seen this before. That's the only chance we have to start doing things with real emotion and with real passion. I remember somebody told me that 
They, uh, they were born and raised non-religious, and they always had an interest. You know, they would read philosophy and ask questions to different people, different walks of life. And eventually, when they found Judaism, they were on fire. And they went to a seminar, and then they met a particular rabbi, and they went to different shirim, and it was like this, this feeling of, of finally getting that truth that I've been longing for. And they described that this euphoria led them through uh, the Israel experience for a year or two. They eventually got married also to a Balchuva, both wonderful people. And then they moved back to America, kind of back to real life. And they started their jobs and starting a family. They were part of a community. And the way that she described it was, I woke up a couple years later into this reality of, I'm just living the from existence. And all of that fire, all of that enthusiasm that I once had, I, it wasn't just that it was gone, but I couldn't even remember what it felt like. That's the way she described it. I couldn't even remember getting myself in that frame of mind where I was excited and, and I felt this hakara sato, this gratitude to be part of this world, to be in this reality. And she said that the next year or two, she had a real, it's like an early midlife crisis. And she had this roller coaster emotionally and also spiritually trying to find herself, trying to connect with different types of learning. And there was a point in her life where she was no longer religious. She said, it took me about three years going through this whole process where I was finally able to get back to where I started from, not with the same enthusiasm, when you're starting off and it's, it's something literally new, it's a, it's a whole change of lifestyle, there's an excitement that likely will not happen again. But after three years of this inner turmoil, and her husband was very supportive the entire time, she was able to come back to appreciating the simple life of a religious Jew. What was it? And this, uh, this was very powerful when I heard it. She said, although I didn't grow up religious, so I didn't hear about all these stories when I was in elementary school. I didn't become religious until after high school during college. So I didn't have these preconceived notions that many people who are FFB might have, but I had different preconceived notions. The way that, that Judaism was presented to me as this will bring you eternal happiness, right? You just sign the dotted line, you drink the Kool-Aid, and it, it, it's going to be incredible. You want real happiness in life, you want real satisfaction, this is your ticket. So she said, I went into Judaism assuming that it would be somewhat easy, and I wouldn't have to go through the same struggles or the same <clears throat> ups and downs of that emotional roller coaster I had for the first part of my life, now I'd have smooth sailing. So that was my trauma, so to speak. 
Then I had this time where I just was floundering. The thing that changed me, that brought me back to feel a sense of gratitude for being here as a Jewish mother was a conversation I had with a friend. I spoke to many Rebbitzins and big names, and for some reason, what they were sharing with me, the advice they were giving, it just wasn't really, wasn't hitting the core. One conversation though with a friend changed my life. You know what she said? She said, just deal with it. Doesn't sound so inspiring, right? But the way that she understood her, the way that she interpreted those words was, no one's promising you that this is automatically going to be a joy ride. Everything in life requires work. A relationship requires work. Everything requires time and, and, and energy. But just because this might not be what was presented to you when you were 21, 22, and therefore now you have to shift your paradigm as to what it is you're actually doing, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It could actually bring you to a place of more depth, of more connection. Perhaps your engagement now in Judaism will not be as selfish as potentially it was before. It's not just about you. It's about connecting with truth and being able to do the right thing and being able to see that truth from a different angle. So says the altar of Kelm, the only way that we can actually live passionately, that we can stoke those coals of, of, of the fire within us when it comes to our Avodah Hashem, is to be able to follow the advice of the philosopher. And he actually quotes, this is on page 11, in the uh, bottom left paragraph. He says, Ki ha-philosophim the philosophers, when they would learn with their disciples, they would instruct all of their disciples to uproot your previous knowledge, as if you were just born today. He says, Baruch Hashem, I'm so grateful that I came to this clarity. We don't have to pretend or we don't have to question everything that we know to be true. However, to create this sense of hischadshus, this, this freshness, this renewal, we have to allow ourselves to view all of the foundations of hashkafa, which means how I perceive Hashem. What is my relationship with Hashem? What am I doing when I'm, when I'm holding a sitter and I'm speaking to the infinite Boreola? What does that look like? What am I trying to accomplish? And not just intellectually having cute answers where I could write an essay on the purpose of tefillah, but experientially being able to view it in a way that it could transform me. The only way we could do that, says the altar of Kelm, is if we forget everything we know. So that's really our next step. Our next step is Amir Tashem, to be able to approach some of the most fundamental issues of Hashkafa from a clean slate. And when we find that, that voice that's creeping in or, or telling us this is not really the way it works, we have to quiet that voice. We have to quiet that voice. I'll share with you one more story. 
a good friend of mine was working with young men who grew up in very religious homes, many of them, you know, from wonderful Hasidish families or Yeshivish families. And due to whatever the circumstances were, were very disturbed and went off the derech finding some level of security in drugs and alcohol. And a friend of mine works with these young men who are very, very far away from their roots, from what their family life was. And what he does is he, he shares with them once a week ideas of Torah to try to give them a different picture, a different feeling towards Judaism, something more positive. And he shared with me that some of the guys in the group were very skeptical. And, and the basic expression was, Rabbi, I understand you're trying to present things in a way that will make us feel better about Judaism. But, with all due respect, I think it's baloney. This, this, is, this is fluffy stuff. You're just trying to make us feel good about something that we know is so difficult. And he had a back and forth with him for a little while trying to explain, these are not my own ideas, I'm sharing with you from Chazal, from Rishonim, and they wouldn't buy it. So he came to me and was schmoozing, and what, what strategy to use? How do you convince people that they were taught something, or at least their impression of Yiddishkeit of Hashem was very negative, very unhealthy, that led them to really the brink to a point of, of, of risking their own lives. And now you're trying to encourage them, but although they hate the Judaism they were exposed to, they're not willing to accept the Judaism